You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience who bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there was a very popular phrase around the early 2000s, and it was this, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. It was in pop songs, it was on t-shirts, people got it tattooed. You may be one of those people that got it tattooed on you. And this came at a time where, when when tolerance was, was really everything. Do you remember that word? Do you remember that word, tolerance? If you were to ask me about a decade ago what society valued most, I probably would have told you tolerance. This idea that you just accept people for who they are and what they're about, don't question people's choices, don't question their opinions, don't question what they do because then that makes you intolerant and nothing is worse. Personal expression was ultimate. And a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of prayer went into navigating how to communicate the timeless, sometimes difficult truths of God's word to such a fragile, easily offended society. But that said, I don't think that we've actually considered that right now we are living in a very different era. And as I've tried to pay attention to culture and how people interact with one another, it's pretty clear that things have dramatically changed. We are no longer living in a tolerant society. We have swung on the pendulum from a tolerance culture to a cancel culture. 
And as it's been, been defined before, a cancel culture is a vengeful game of moral one-upmanship in which social annihilation can come at any second. See, what's formed over the last few years is this sort of pseudo-justice system where the online mob is judge, jury, and executioner. It's about finding fault. It's about hunting down the guilty. It's about publicly shaming an individual or a group and then banishing them forever. It lacks any sort of restorative justice. It lacks any sort of path to redemption. And the terrifying thing is, that in the digital age, anything you've said or done can and will be held against you in this court of law. Like the blood of Abel, your wrongdoing cries out from the ground condemning you. And I read a really interesting uh, op-ed from a feminist activist named Loretta Ross, and I mention that because I don't want you to think that this is a strictly conservative opinion. And what Loretta Ross said is that while accountability, and especially for people in power, is absolutely necessary. She said one of the major problems with cancel culture is that most public shaming is horizontal, and it's done by those who believe that they have a greater integrity and a more sophisticated analysis, and that they've become these, quote, self-appointed guardians of purity. So think about this. Self-righteous, self-deceived, self-appointed guardians of purity. And like that, 2,000 years between us today and the first century church in Rome vanishes as if Paul was speaking directly to us in this very moment right now. Now, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans, and we're looking at how God forms a new humanity, a people that demonstrate the life and love of God's kingdom in a cruel and broken world. And what we saw last week is that God confronts those who practice sin and give approval to others as well. He, he speaks out to the, against the tolerant culture and then calls them into a new and better way of living. But today... In this passage, the tables have turned. And what we discover is that God now confronts those who have become self-appointed judges. He calls out the cancel culture. And he's calling them into a new and better way of living. From those who condone to today, those who condemn. So let's begin here. Let's look first at the danger of judgment. The danger of judgment. Let's look in verses 1 through 3 again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape I'm sorry, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? So these are some heavy words. And what Paul uncovers about us here is that we have this strange way of being critical about others and overlooking our own faults. We all do it. We have ridiculously high standards for the people around us, 
and then ridiculously low standards for ourselves. And what ends up happening is that we gain this sense of satisfaction and temporary sense of relief uh, from our own guilt when we condemn in others this very same thing that we excuse in ourselves. So an author put it this way, those things that we cannot accept about ourselves, we project upon others. If I do not admit my shadow side, I will unconsciously find another who will carry my shadow for me. So I'm reminded of a story in the Old Testament centered around uh, King David. We're told that King David, one day, he's up on his roof and he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. He calls his officials and he says, hey, go get her. And as she comes to him, he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant, uh, he finds out, and then he scrambles to cover his sins. And so what he ends up doing is he sends this woman's husband, Uriah, to the front lines of battle and then he tells the lieutenant or whatever, he says, pull back when Uriah's at the front so that he dies. Uriah dies in battle, and then David begins to make excuses. He says, well, death, death happens. He's a soldier. That's like inevitable. The arrow got him today, but it would, have got him, it would have got him eventually. And God is displeased. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to, to speak to David. And, and Nathan begins to tell David this, this story about this really devastating, this really devastating story about a lamb. And he says there, there were these two men in a certain town. One was a rich man, one was a poor man. The rich man owned this huge herd of, of sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but a little lamb. And he raised this little lamb, and it grew up with his children. He would allow this lamb to, like, eat off his plate and drink from his cup, and he would cuddle it like a baby daughter. And so one day, a guest shows up to the rich man's house. But instead of the rich man going to his abundant flock to slaughter an animal, he goes to the poor man's house, steals the lamb, slaughters that lamb, and gives it to his guest. And David is furious. He cannot believe it. In fact, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who did such a thing deserves to die. And Nathan says, you still don't get it, do you? You're the man. This is you. And in David's condemnation, they deserve to die, he says. He ended up invoking his own curse. This is what we do when we pass judgment on others. We condemn ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean that we go to an opposite extreme where we have no determination or conviction about what is right or wrong. The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good. We can't be those described in chapter 1, as, as those who condone and give approval to what God forbids, we are called to hold each other accountable. We are called to call certain patterns and behaviors. We are called, as Jesus said, to remove that big old plank in our own eye so that we can remove the speck of dust in our brother's eye. But to pass judgment, to pass judgment is very particular. It's, it's to go further than saying what you've done is 
wrong. It's to condemn the person along with the action. It's reducing someone down to one single defining worst moment. It's not saying, what you've done is wrong, you've lied to me. It's saying, you are a liar. It's not saying, I condemn what you've done. It says, I condemn you. And what's most tragic about this passing of judgment is that it's us attempting to put our, ourselves in the place of God as if we are without sin, as if we have the moral high ground, as if we are wise and capable enough, enough to determine what someone deserves or doesn't deserve. And Paul says twice, oh man, oh man, he is reminding us, you are simply human. What ends up happening, what ends up happening is we leave ourselves not only without any excuse, but as Paul says, we leave ourselves without escape. We think condemning others is going to give us freedom from our own guilt, but in the long run, it only ends up binding us further to that guilt. Dangerous, dangerous business judging people. Secondly, despising God's kindness Look with me in verses four and five again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Al Pacino once said, I ask God for a bike, but I know he doesn't work that way. So I stole the bike, and then I asked God for forgiveness. And in this sort of silly state, I think it illustrates how many of us approach God, thinking that we are entitled to his forgiveness and his kindness. Well, that, that's just how God works. We, we've, we've got this agreement. I do bad things. He's good to me still. It's just, it's just bada bing, bada boom. It's how God works. But ultimately, what this reveals in us is not too high a view of God's kindness. We can never exaggerate God's kindness. What this reveals in us is a seriously low view of God's kindness. As we're told here, the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance, not to give us excuses to live the way that we want to live. The kindness of God, when truly appreciated, actually compels us toward repentance. It compels us to live entirely different lives. It takes away all excuse-making. To presume upon the riches of God's kindness is actually to despise God's kindness. And I say that because in the original language, this word here for presume actually is translated to despise. And the connection that I think that Paul is making for us here is that one of the main ways that we despise God's kindness is by thinking that we deserve it more than someone else does. That, that we don't really need rescue and mercy that bad. That's for like the broken people. That's for like the chapter one people, not us, chapter two church going people. But the more that we presume upon the kindness of God, Thinking that we deserve God's grace, as Paul describes here, the harder our hearts get. And the harder our hearts become to God, 
the less willing we are to humbly repent. And the only way, listen to me, the only way to cut ourselves off from God's grace is not sin. The Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's not brokenness. In fact, God is drawn towards brokenness to heal. It's not failure. Have you ever read the Bible and see the kind of failures that God uses? The only way that we can cut ourselves off, effectively cut ourselves off from the grace of God is this. Listen, to refuse to repent. And in this sad, tragic turn of events, what Paul describes here is that the religious person, not the worldly pagan, listen to me, the religious person who has so much confidence that they're just good with God. I'm good with God because they have the word of God, because they live a pretty good life, because they're not as bad as these other people, that they will find themselves storing up wrath from God. Why? Because all along, they've been trusting in themselves. They've been trusting in their own righteousness. They've been trusting in their own religious efforts. And therefore, all along, they have been rejecting God's grace. They have been rejecting God's kindness. They have been rejecting the mercy of God. To presume upon God's kindness is to despise it entirely. Third, divine justice. I hope this is pretty clear by now, that we are not fit to be passing judgment on others, but God is perfectly fit to. And what Romans shows us is that God is a good and an impartial judge. And in verse 6, we're told that he will render to each according to his works. Okay, so let's, let's apply this practically right now. What frees us from the temptation that we all have of walking around in this world as these self-appointed judges? What is going to free us from this pattern of judgment? Here it is. By believing that God is a fair and just God. If I don't think that God is a good judge I will step in to replace him. If I don't think that God is truly just, then I will step in to impose my vision of justice in this world. How do we free ourselves from this pattern? We have to believe and know for certain that every single person, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, they will all, we will all stand before a holy God and give an account for our life. Now, Paul is making an, a, a case that we are justified by faith through Jesus Christ. In fact, that, that is the core of this gospel that Paul is proclaiming. We are justified, we are righteous, we are made right with God through trusting in Jesus Christ. However, he is also stating that we will be judged according to our works. And there's nuance here that we have to grasp, okay? We are justified by faith, judged according to our works. And it's not because good works are what saves us. It's not because good works put us in right standing with God. It is, however, because good works are the evidence of whether or not we are saved. 
Good works are the proof of whether or not our life was lived seeking God's glory and the good of others or just we've been living for ourselves. And it's not going to be your profession of faith in that day. It's not going to be the fact that you prayed a prayer at camp as a kid. What is it going to be? We're told here it's going to be your works that will evidence the work of God in you. And on that day, when we stand before a holy God, there will be no questions. There won't be any kind of back and forth. There won't be a barter occurring. All the contents of our lives and even the secrets of our hearts will be finally disclosed. Now, one of the objections that Paul is anticipating in this portion of the scriptures is a really good objection. And it's this. What about those who do not have the law of God? How can God be a just God to hold people to a standard of living that they were unaware of? People without the law. But he answers this. In verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So here's the reason. The reason is this, that regardless of your biblical knowledge or not, whether you have the law or don't have the law, God has built within every single person a basic sense of right and wrong. Now, we, as we learned last week, we suppress that knowledge, but God builds it in. And for every single person, religious, irreligious, whatever, our conscience bears witness for or against us. Francis Schaeffer, he illustrates this in a really, really profound way. He says this, imagine, thinking caps here, imagination caps. If every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as they grew, bound other people, eventually, each person comes to that great moment where they stand before God as judge. And suppose then that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each person heard played out in his or her own words all those statements by which they had bound other people in moral judgment. And they could hear it going on for years, thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other people. And then God would simply say to that person, though they never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? And every voice will be stilled, he says. All people would have to acknowledge that they have deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. God is completely just. A person is judged and found wanting on the same basis on which they have tried to bind others. God is just. Let's fourth, look at this, defined by God's grace, defined by God's grace. While this portion, like the previous portion and a few portions to come, while this portion of Romans is pretty bleak, we have to remember that it fits into the overall letter of the book of Romans. And the overall book of letter, uh, the, the letter of Romans is centered on the gospel, which believe it or not is good news of life and freedom within God's kingdom. And so what's important to understand is that Paul is building a case. He's, he's creating, intentionally creating tension 
in his letter that he'll resolve later on in chapter 3. But for now, he's just stirring questions. He's getting us to ask questions like these. Like, if it's the non-religious people that are under judgment and it's the religious person that's under judgment, that there's no advantage to either, then what hope is there? And so what Paul does here in this passage is he just gives us a little hint at it now. He'll conclude uh, explicitly in like a chapter and a half today in this passage. He just gives us a little hint. And it's found in verse 16. And it says this, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so it's absolutely vital that we begin to see the relationship between judgment and Jesus. That while the judgment of God is serious and real, no one escapes it. That the deliverance that he offers through his son Jesus Christ is just as serious and real. And Jesus is the way that God can remain serious about justice and serious about mercy without compromising either one. As we're shown here, God sees you inside and out. I'm not just talking about your observable good works. I'm talking about your secrets. I'm talking about every thought, talking about motivations, talking about actions, talking about resentment and hate and lusts and anything and everything else that would mortify you if the world knew. And if there was ever a person who had dirt on you, who had every shred of evidence to cancel you, not only in this life, but in eternity, it would be God. And yet, what does he do? We're told in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come to cancel us. But in love, he came to be canceled. He came to be condemned on the cross in our place, to be hunted down, to be publicly shamed, to be banished from life. The judgment that we deserve came down on him so that the eternal life of freedom that he deserved could come down on us. Because of Jesus' rescue, we are no longer, listen, defined by our worst. We are no longer defined by our sin. We're no longer defined by our shame. We're no longer defined by our condemnation. We're no longer defined by the voice of the accuser. We are defined by God's grace. The world is going to seek to define you by your worst. And yet God will define you by his best. His once and for all pronouncement over our lives. You are my beloved. You are forgiven. You are mine. This is grace. And this is a grace that we simply cannot earn. It's a grace that we'd never deserve. But it's a grace that we receive through repentance and faith, which means that we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is how this grace comes into our lives. 
and this is a grace, when received, cannot be contained. We begin to display it to others. See, we've been looking at how God creates a new humanity. God has created a transformed people that love and flourish in the midst of hostile societies. And so what this means for us today is finally displaying a gospel culture in the midst of a cancel culture. Displaying a gospel culture. Think about this. What good is it if we simply condemn a condemning culture? Our culture condemns. What are we going to do about it? Just condemn it and be a part of the problem? See, the only viable way to seek change around us is to display something new and more beautiful among us that makes the old obsolete. And this means displaying a gospel culture within the church. Let me illustrate this. This last week, I received two distinct messages from people in the church. One was an angry, condemning email seeking to degrade and intimidate me into making a very specific change in the church that this person was demanding. It was accusatory, it was deeply disrespectful, and big shock, it lacked any kind of power to bring about change. The very next morning, bright and early, as I'm still stewing on this email from the night before, I receive a text message from another person in the church. They have no idea what's happened. All that they know is that God has nudged them to send an encouraging text. And so they express gratitude. They express commitment to the body of Christ and enjoyment to be a part of this church. And they pray for blessing in the areas that are concerning me. And not only was I, in, through this brief text message, not only was I drawn out of my frustration and resentment at that moment, but whether they knew it or not, I was talked out of an ungodly response to the email. I was talked out of fire, uh, fighting fire with fire. I was stopped from canceling the person that was attempting to cancel me. That's gospel culture. That's transforming culture among God's people. See, cancel culture says, we condemn you for what you've done and good luck ever being loved and welcomed again. And we gotta be honest, we are so quick to do this. So quick to do this. I'm done with you. Gospel culture says, we don't condemn you because of what Jesus has done. Come experience freedom from sin and shame. Come and be transformed, not through fear, not through accusation, but by the love of God. And so here's my prayer for our church. My prayer for our church is that the gospel of Jesus would not just be proclaimed, but it'd be felt. That the gospel would be felt by those who expect shame and are surprised by welcome. That the gospel would be felt by those who have been motivated by fear their entire life and are now being compelled by the kindness of God that leads us into a changed life. May God use us to step into a cancel culture and replace it with a gospel culture for his glory and the joy of our city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word.